When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They served at Beersheba, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his grounds and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Good evening everybody, my name's Stuart, one of the pastors here at Sorrel Revival and uh, we're continuing our series in 1 Samuel and today we hear that the people of Israel are looking for a king. So let's bow our heads and ask God for his wisdom uh, as we hear his voice tonight. Dear God, I do pray uh, for us tonight that we would be able to have soft hearts as we come to your word. As we heard read, the people of Israel had hard hearts and had rejected your kingship of their life. And we pray, Father, we wouldn't be like that, but we would seek to live under your rule and that we would seek to rely on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question I've got for us tonight to start off with is, uh, where are some of the areas that you have things in your life that you rely on? Do you have things in your life that you rely on? Uh, one of the things I thought of during the week that I rely on, that I think most of us do, is a motor car. Hands up how many of us actually have a car. How many of us are in a household where there is a car that you can have access to, even if you don't get to drive it and do doughies around the neighbourhood <laughs> just yet? Hands up if anybody's like, no, nah, I'm not doing the car thing. I'm just doing trains and bikes. Anyone here do that? I've got some friends who do that. Okay, so tonight, most of us seem to have cars, right? So I wanted to tell you a little bit about my car. Uh, there's a photo of my car coming up on the screen. 
I think it looks okay. It's, a, it's my everyday ride. It's been my everyday ride since 2006. Sometimes it lets me down. Most of the time it gets me from A to B. But from the outside, it looks kind of schmick. You know, I get it polished and washed. And Unfortunately, my car, uh, I leave it outside a lot. And it is a 50-year-old car. So, you know, 50-year-old steel doesn't quite like the environment. But looking at it from the outside, it kind of looks okay. But, yeah, yeah, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> if you look on the inside and pull up the mat from the floor, wow, there's almost no floor left. That's kind of almost gone. And actually, that's just the start of it. Uh, it's just about five weeks ago, Lou and I went around the car and poked our pencils into different pieces of rust, and there was quite a lot of it. Now, I just want to say, I think just before you go on to the next slide, I think what we do with our cars is we rely on them a lot, right? And in our culture, we have a shorthand way of speaking about things we rely on. Now, let me explain what I mean. If someone says, how do you get around... The shorthand answer is, I use my car. If someone says, what do you rely on for transport? You might say, predominantly my car, or train or bike, whatever it might be, right? So I will say, I rely on my car. But the problem is, my car's not reliable. I, I, I've met many an NRMA man. <laughs> I've met many a tow truck driver. In fact, I did a funeral for a tow truck driver once, and I knew half the congregation that had come to say they their goodbyes to him. They were all there in the car park, all the tow trucks that had picked my car up. My car's not really reliable, but the shorthand way of me saying, what do I rely on? My shorthand is the car. But really, who do I rely on? I rely on these people in the next slide, these boys. You see, that's, <laughs> that's the photo taken in 2014. Last time the rust got so bad that I had to take it to someone and get it fixed up. And these boys in their shed had it for two months and they gave... Uh, the car a bit of Botox and gave it a bit of a uh, new, new splash of lippy and, <laughs> and it looks good again. So really, if I'm going to answer the question, what do I rely on? I don't actually rely on my car. I rely on the people who keep my car going. But because that's even shorthand, I don't even just rely on these guys. What I rely on is not just these guys, but I rely on the people who made my car in the first place, that they made it well, now I tried to look for a photo of Shimo, but I found this car in a shed in 2004 and it had chickens in it. And it was brought back to metal and it was in out western New South Wales and I went and put it on the back of one of the tow trucks that I, with the guys I was talking about and I brought it to Sydney and Shimo restored it. And when Shimo restored it, uh, it was ready by 2006 and Lou and I and the boys, Elijah was three months old, we went for two months long service leave up to Queensland and the boys, Shimo and the boys, had taken bets to see how far the car would get up to Queensland. Because they said, how far do you want to drive? And I said, Cooktown. And they were like, you're not going to get to Cooktown, man. I said, but you built the car. And they're like, yeah, that's why we know you're not going to get to Cooktown. <laughs> but we did get to Cooktown. And I won't tell you that story. But I can tell you that story another time. Lots of adventures, a lot of fun. We got home. That was good. But even, it's not just Shimo I rely on with my car who restored it. I actually rely on the original people who made it in Germany in 1974. That's who I rely on. But I don't just rely on them. That's shorthand as well. I rely on the one who made the guys who made the car, that restored the car, that fixed the car, that actually means that I get on the road. I actually rely on God who made the guys who made the... Well, the people. I don't know if they're all guys. The people who made the people. Who, and God actually was the one who's done that. 
But in our shorthand way of thinking, even as Christians, we don't often see God in the everyday, do we? Do you, do you see God in the everyday? If someone was to say, what do you rely on? You might say, my job. Okay, cool. Well, is it really your job you're relying on? No. You're relying on the people who gave you the job. And the pe- people who gave you the job are, are made by God. And also the skills you had to get the job were given to you by God. You see what I'm trying to say? There's a new technique in business these days, actually. If there's a problem in, in the business, you've got to ask fi- uh, why five times. Have you heard that? You, you ask for why, why, why. And that's what I'm getting at tonight. I think this passage is getting us to ask why. And not just why about the Israelites, but why about ourselves? Why do we trust what we trust? And when we trust in things, who are we really trusting in? Now, my Uncle John said, once, he's a panel beater, he's passed away now, but uh, my Uncle John... Um, he said to me once, he said, Stuart, if you hear a banging noise in your car, don't ignore it. I said, why not, Uncle John? He says, because, Stuart, cars don't fix themselves. If there's a banging noise, there's a problem and someone needs to fix it. And the same is true for people. If there's a banging noise in our lives, we shouldn't ignore it and just hope that it goes away. But instead of going to a panel beater or a mechanic, we need to go to the cosmic builder, the cosmic mechanic, who can actually help our lives to be restored. God himself. Well, the big deal about this passage tonight is that the people of Israel have not asked enough whys either. They haven't asked, why do we want what we want? And so as a result, they're asking for a really foolish thing in this passage. Now, before we dive into the passage, let's have a look at some of the details around this part of 1 Samuel that we're looking at. Basically, 1 Samuel is the outworking of all the important predictions about what would happen to the people of Israel that are written down in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It's really interesting to see Israelite culture developing along exactly the same lines as Moses said it would, it would develop. And the problem is that the Israelite culture had developed into a really bad pattern of breakdown and restoration and breakdown and restoration. Just like my combi, they kept getting rusted out and needing a restoration. And so in the book that comes before 1 Samuel, the book of Judges, we see that the people of Israel would turn their backs on God and he would restore them with a judge. He'd bring a leader that would come and restore them. But the leader wasn't the big deal. The leader was leading under his authority. So what God was doing when he brought up a judge or a leader of the people of Israel is he was leading the people of Israel back to himself. So they'd get into strife. They'd be attacked by the Amorites or they'd be attacked by the Philistines and they'd call out to God for salvation and he would save them. But over that period of time, they drifted a long way from where they were under Moses when they first came into the land. See, when they were in, uh, under Moses, it was actually the priests, the Levites, that led the people of Israel. And so now they're being led by these judges and what we see in 1 Samuel is the wreckage of judges and a ruined society trying to restore and we also see an attempt to try and get back to good leadership under the priesthood of the way it should have been, the way Moses uh, instituted it under God. So you see in the chapters of Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 17, 20, you see all these insights about all the, uh, the, the ways that Israel would kind of develop and Samuel is actually developing as a priest but what you see is a broken system. 
because Moses was kind of like the first priestly leader of Israel. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we were introduced to Eli, who was a priest in 1 Samuel, who, while he was a priest, he wasn't doing his job. And his sons had actually become very corrupt. So this attempt to restore the priesthood under Eli had failed. So then you see Samuel, who was raised up by God, who's supposed to go, okay, let's institute this Levite tradition again. But again, what we see as we come to chapter 7 and 8 is when we're in chapter 8, we see that even Samuel's sons are going to go off track. So there's this kind of like desperation. Now, with my car, one of the problems I've had with it is I've taken it to a few panel beaters that don't know anything about combi vans. And when I take it to a panel beater who doesn't know anything about combi vans, they see rust and they tell me they can fix it and they bog it up. Do you know what bog is? Have you ever heard of that? Most of you probably don't even know what bog is because you're young. But those of us who are older, who have cars in the 70s and 80s and 90s, know that when they used to rust out, they used to get this kind of material. I don't even know what what it is, actually. It's just bog. So they put this bog on it. And the problem with the bog is it, it would just kind of rust around the edges. They cover up. It was like putting putting cover-up on a pimple. It's kind of like that's what it is. The pimple still grows under the cover-up, but you know, sooner or later you've got the consequences of it, and that's why you get this problem. And that's what's happening in a combi van that keeps getting rusted out, which hasn't been fixed properly. And this is what's happening with the people of Israel. They haven't fixed their society, because to fix their society would be to cut out the rust, repent of the rust, and weld in some new plates, and put a whole heap of new things in there before you paint it, not bog it up. But the problem is that what we're going to see is that because the Levite tradition, the priesthood is broken time and time again, the people want to bog it over. And in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 15, Moses predicted this is what they do. See, what the people are doing is their reference point is not God when things go wrong, it's the other nations. How do we be like the other nations? And in Deuteronomy 17, 14 and 15, this is what Moses says, when you enter the land your Lord your God has given you and you've taken possession of it and settled it and you say, let us have a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord chooses and he must be from among the fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. Now, what the people of Israel are doing is they're sticking to that, but kinder. They, they don't just want an Israelite king, and they're not getting a king from another nation, but they're wanting an Israelite king who's like the other nations. Do you see what I'm saying? To fix up a combi properly, you need a combi specialist. Now, my car's getting fixed up again. And I've actually looked around, and this time we found a combi specialist who knows how to fix them properly. East Coast Combis, if you're interested. There's a little plug for East Coast Combis. Up at Gosford. And this dude knows how to fix a car without bog. Likewise, a king who's been instituted by God, who follows God, knows actually how to fix up Israel because he actually knows he's not the king. He's only an under-king, under-God. See, the problem of having a king like the other nations or a king from the other nations is that king will think that he has ultimate authority. And that's the danger. So we're going to see a failure to establish a proper system. We're going to see a desire of the people for their own government of their making. We're going to see uh, a perceived need for a military king who is like the other nations to fight for them instead of God fighting for them. And we're going to see a desire of the people to have a national government that looks like all the other nations, even though the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, has told them not to be like the other nations. 
But the more fundamental issue that we see here for the people of Israel in this passage is that the Israelites have rejected God as their king, literally. They have not taken his authority. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 5, it says, He was a king over Jeshurun when the leaders of the people assembled along with the tribes of Israel. So the idea of assembling the people under a king is a good thing, but not a king who is the wrong king. We've got to be careful that we need to ask, why do we want to do what we do in our life? Because we might be putting the wrong things in place in authority over our lives that aren't actually going to achieve what we want them to achieve. It's okay to have a car, but if we worship that car, then that's a problem because that car becomes a king of itself. We forget the person who fixed it, the person who restored it, the person who made it in the first place, and the God who made those people who did that in the first place. We can't do anything in our life, including breathe or have our hearts beat, without the sustaining power of God. But if other things creep into our heart that are more important to us than God, then we're in danger of doing the same thing as Israelites. And the danger for us in this world is that we want all the things that everyone else around us has. And I know that in my generation, cars were a big deal. I know in younger generations, some of the young crew love cars, but they don't seem to have the same cultural power they used to have. But in my generation, a car was like my identity. That's why I got a combi, because I wanted people to look at my car and go, I know the kind of person who drives that car. That person is probably a surfer or a hippie or someone who's pretty cash or someone who has a bit of style Someone who recognises the greatest piece of architecture on wheels ever is a VW made in Germany. It's called a combi van. Jeff agrees with all those statements. Yep, thumbs up. See, that's becoming different to what it should be. And see, some of you young crew, you just I've heard some of you talk about cars. Oh, I don't care what I drive. It's not an extension of your personality so much these days as it used to be. Maybe it is for you. And some of us here do have that problem. But what we need to do to stop that problem is keep asking why. Why are we doing what we're doing? So let's have a quick look at 1 Samuel in this passage in chapter 8 and look at the three things that went wrong because the people of Israel didn't say why. First of all, Samuel's sons are rejected as judges. Let's have a quick look at verses 1 to 3. Now when the Ephronites asked Gideon, why do you treat us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? They challenged him vigorously. And he answered, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of the Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape of the harvest of Ebenezer? God gave Oreb... Sorry, I'm starting with Judges here. I said 1 Samuel, it's Judges 8, 1, 3, I'm talking about here. God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do uh, compared to that? As this, their resentment against him subsided. What I wanted to read that for is because it comes from the judges and we can see two things, that each of the leaders of Israel are being held accountable by the people. So in a way, even though they have a leader, it's kind of a democracy because the leaders are leading but the people are having this pushback on their leaders, okay? So in a way, it's kind of similar to our society. We don't have to uh, unpack this situation in judges, but what we do see here is that um, they had resentment towards their leader And when he did what they asked him to do, their resentment subsided. But when we come to uh, 1 Samuel 8, 1 to 3, what we have is the leaders of Israel are now challenging Samuel 
in that same way. Do you understand what's going on? So they've got a culture of pushback on their leaders, which I think is a healthy thing. But the problem with it is it's going overboard because they're actually demanding that their leaders do what they want them to do. And that can be a bit of a problem in our culture too, in our democracy, because we want good leadership, but we want our leaders to do what we want them to do. And if there's a leader that we didn't vote for, then sometimes I've even heard people in more modern times saying things like, oh, that's not my Prime Minister. Oh, it kind of is. Because <laughs> the Prime Minister is a Prime Minister, even if you didn't vote for him. But the people of Israel are a bit like that. The judge is appointed by God. He's their judge, whether they're good or bad. And the people are like, not my judge. In some ways, I think the people of Israel are a little bit Australian. Well, they come to Samuel, a little bit like that, and they're saying to Samuel, your sons, Joel and Abijai, have turned against... Um, uh, turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. And so what the people are asking for then is for Samuel to give them a solution. But the interesting thing in this solution is if we go for the next point, point two, Israel's elders demand a king in chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. They don't ask Samuel how to fix the problem. They tell him how they want to fix it. Now, again, that's okay. You know, the people have every right to do that, don't they? But let's look what they asked for in 1 Samuel 8, 4-6. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But they said, Give us a king to lead us. And this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. So did you notice the words there that are the dangerous ones? You've got Deuteronomy 17 kind of echoing in the back of your mind from the beginning of the sermon. Don't have a king like the other nations. Don't have another king from another nation. And they're not having a king from another nation, but they want one like the other nations. So they're suggesting something to Samuel that displeases him. But it's not the fact that his sons are wicked. Look at that. He doesn't, he doesn't get upset with them and say, how dare you have a go at my children. So they're not 100% Australian, the Israelites. <laughs> So I think if anybody messes with our family, Australians seem to get the, tend to get their back up. Don't you criticise my family? What about your family? No, he knows his sons have gone off the rails. It must be incredibly painful for him because he'd seen Eli's sons go off the rails and he'd been appointed to make sure that didn't happen again. And to his displeasure, his sons have rejected God and have gone and used the office they have for dishonest gain. But no, what displeased Samuel is that they wanted to dispense with God, so to speak. Because really, that's what you do when you trust in other things and don't ask why. If you don't ask, why am I trusting in this thing, and you keep asking that question until you get back to God, you're not thinking deeply enough about your life in relation to your relationship with God. And I think we don't only do that with God, we do it with other things too in our lives. It's a bad habit that we get into in our relationships. Sometimes we forget the why in our life. Why am I married? Sometimes we forget that in the heat of an argument or the boredom of years and years and years of being with the same person, seeing them brush their teeth every morning for decades. Wow. I'm sure Lou sometimes sees me cleaning my teeth and goes, wow. She probably thinks to herself, I remember when that rooster was standing up in front of a congregation in a really nice suit, looking dapper and young. Look at him. Jeez, his hair's all over the place, bed hair. He's, you know, yawning, walking in the bathroom, cleaning his teeth. Wow. 
It's not quite as spectacular as the wedding service, is it? We all feel like that sometimes. It can be a friendship. Why am I even friends with this person? I wish they'd stop ringing me. Why am I doing this job? I hate this job. I hate my life. I want, what, where am I going in my life? Often those feelings of discontent can often come from a lack of asking the question why, which leads us to God, because he is our why. The reason Lou and I made commitment to each other at a marriage was because we did it with God. We have him in our relationship. And Lou made a promise that she would be married to me for better, for worse, for tuxedo and morning breath. (laughs) I'm having a bit of fun with that, but do you see where I'm going? Can you see how when we stop asking why, we can actually start trying to run on our own energies instead of God's energy? And we can slowly be falling apart without realising it. And when we cry out for solutions to our problems in our life, we might not be looking to God for the solution. We might like to try and solve our financial problems with something that's less than awesome. I know Christians who've gone to jail for fraud because their business has been going so bad that they've actually cut some corners and then before they know it, they've started doing dishonest practices and then before they know it, they've been caught and they've gone to jail. I know a guy who went to jail for nine years because he was cooking the books. White-collar crime. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all go down that track, but self-medication is a really big problem in our society. Sometimes we try and medicate our problems with alcohol or with, with gambling or with other things that aren't helpful, really dodgy stuff on the internet. But even less than those things, sometimes our hearts just grow tired and then they grow hard. What we need to have is a fresh heart Like Samuel, despite the problem with his children, he is continuing to follow the Lord and he warns the people. And he says to them, you want a king to rule over you, do you? You want to have a king like the other nations. And he has that long speech, which is the third longest speech in the book. That speech where he talks about all the chariots and the perfume holders And the people with the vineyards, like me, you probably tuned out during the reading because you thought to yourself, that's completely irrelevant. Well, I want to say tonight, actually, that was the most important thing in the whole reading. You might be surprised by that. But that long speech of all that list of things was the most important warning in this whole passage. I'll tell you why. Because the people want a king and they think the king's going to do what they want the king to do. But the problem with an idol is the idol ends up ruining your life and running your life rather than you being in control of it. See, the problem for us is we think if we've got a car, like a combi, that's going to be an extension of our personality and then everyone's going to know how cool we are. The problem is you're on a, you're on a treadmill as soon as you get one of them things. You've got to keep fixing it all the time. You've got to keep on top of it. And it can actually rule your life instead of you ruling its life. I was on Facebook the other day, I was just flicking through a few things, looking at the disaster that is Sheffield Wednesday at the moment. Lost the manager, have got two points out of ten games, no one here cares, but I'm going to say it anyway. Devastating. If you want to have some pastoral care for your pastor, you can come talk to me afterwards to see if I'm all right. But as I was reading all the bad news, flicking through all the little posts, do you know what a post came up? A post came up for problem drinking for people over 55. Now, there must be some algorithm that's caught on that I'm over 55. Heaven knows how that happened. 
I don't know. Smart internet. No, it's pretty easy actually, because I think I put my age in my profile. <laughs> and I think it's on public view for the whole world to see, so I don't think it's too hard for the marketers to snap onto that one. But I thought, isn't that interesting? I don't go online to look for alcohol, but it knew that I'm over 55. And it knew, presumably, that people who get over 55 may actually be tempted to make an idol out of something that's meant to be something that's, you know, alcohol's okay to drink. But alcohol can take control of you rather than you being in control of alcohol. And this is what Samuel's talking about, the king, with the donkeys and all that stuff. I'm going to just use one example. He said, your young men are going to run in front of the chariots. Now, I almost tear up at that. Do you know how terrifying that is? What's terrifying is God promised the people of Israel that he would defeat their enemies for them. And there are multiple examples when they were faithful to him, he defeated their enemies and they didn't even have to lift a sword. But a king, like the other nations, will build an army. And actually in Deuteronomy, the Bible says for the king of Israel, one of the things that should do is look after the widow, he should do is look after the widows and orphans. And the other thing a king should do is not form an army that has lots of chariots. But here is the Pharaoh down in Egypt. Oh, we need a king like Pharaoh who's going to create an army like Pharaoh and we're going to be safe. Well, what does that mean? That means Daniel and Elijah have to put on a uniform and go to boot camp and have their heads shaved and they have to climb ropes and jump over obstacles and then they have to get put on a boat and get sent overseas. And before they know it, they're in a foxhole somewhere on the other side of the world and they don't even know what country they're in. And there are people shooting at them. And then Lou gets a letter. Your son is missing in action. And then Joanne gets a letter. Your son has been killed in action. Thank you for your service. That's what Samuel is warning about. The people think that they'll be great like the other nations, but all they're going to be is slaves to their king. And they're going to pay with it with their own, their own children, their own sons. So that's not all that displeases Samuel, though. The third point is, it's interesting in the third point that God grants their request. It's a sinful request in chapter 8, verses 7 to 22. But the Lord said he will grant it, but he warns them. And the Lord told them, listen to all, uh, to all that the people... This is what he's saying to Samuel. The Lord says to Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not that they have... Re- uh, it, sorry, I'll say it again. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now, this is the real turning point of the whole passage. And we need to ask ourselves that question. Do we ever reject God? Because if we reject him, then our life will not progress in the way that he's designed it to be. Now, the reality is we're all sinful and we all do that. And we're all sinful. And the reality is we have Jesus who's died for our sin and paid for our sin. But how many times in the New Testament does the New Testament say, work with the Holy Spirit as he is sanctifying you to become a better Christian, to grow as a Christian? How many times in the New Testament do you see the Bible say, don't give up the habit of meeting together with other Christians? How many times in the Bible does it say, don't fall in love with the things of this world, but make sure you focus on what's important? Uh, Paul himself says, you know, focus on things above, not on earthly things. He says in Colossians, clothe yourself with Christ. Basically, all those 
commands are saying, ask the question why every day and in every circumstance. In everything you do, keep asking, why am I doing this and why am I sure that this is the right thing to do? Because you don't want to be like the Israelites who demand something other than what God wants for them because he knows best. See what it says in verse 8. From the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day was one continuous was one continuous experience of forsaking me and serving other gods. I'm unexpectedly choked up about that. The God of Israel had done everything for them, given them the land, given them all the things he promised. And the whole, listen to what he says in verse 8, it's such an indictment on the Israelites. From the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day was one continuous experience of forsaking me and serving other gods. But you see, that's not just the Israelite heart, that's all our hearts because of our sin. That's the definition of sin. We forsake God and we serve other gods, like combi vans, and sometimes things that are even worse, that actually eat us away and destroy us. 1 Samuel is a very big warning to us not to be calling for another king other than the Lord God as our king. Samuel was, sorry, Samuel was stung by their rejection of God because, they underst- because he understood what that was going to mean for them. And in verse 10 to 18, he understood that a king would oppress them. Look what verse 10 says. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. That's why he unpacked that thing that I said, that section that I said was the most important thing. It's oppression. They're replacing God's gracious love with oppression. What did Jesus say? He said, the yoke I give you is light, the burden I give you is easy, but the yoke that other gods give you is heavy, and the yoke that other gods give you will destroy you. How do you stop being destroyed by other gods? How do you make sure other things in your life don't become gods? Just keep asking why. The people didn't ask why in verse 19 to 22. The people demand a king despite the warnings. Then when we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us, he will go out into battle before us to fight our battles. But they are so naive because the king doesn't go out and fight the battles for the people of Israel. He sends their sons to fight the battle. Now, sure, some of the kings do. David goes and fights battles. But the story of the kings of Israel, uh, even with David, take an interesting twist, don't they? David, who fought the battles like the people wanted him to do, he one day didn't go into battle because he couldn't be bothered. He stayed home. Remember that story? And he stayed on his castle wall and he's walking around, couldn't be bothered going to battle. He sent everybody else out. And he sees one of his officer's wives. He takes her for his own wife and has the officer murdered in battle. And that is David, who had a, heart after God, had a, had a love after God's own heart. We need to listen to Samuel. But the people refused to listen to Samuel and they reaffirmed their demand. And the interesting thing is the Lord answers them and gives them what they want. I've said some things that are important, some things that need to be listened to. The, the last thing I'm going to share is probably the most terrifying thing in the passage. The Lord gives us what we want sometimes. You know when you've got a kid, have you, anybody here like know any children? You don't have to have had one to know them. Has anyone here ever actually related to a child? They can be very Israelitish. I want the rattle. <laughs> I want this. I want that. 
sometimes the children, and even when we were children, we did it as well, sometimes ask for really bad things. Now, I couldn't think of an example before the sermon, but I'd love to have someone come and share an example with me after the sermon of something that kids ask for that's not good for them. The only thing I could come close to is I one day didn't want to go outside with my... With my, um, with my with, I've got to say flip-flops in case there's people overseas listening to this podcast. Flip-flops on, thongs. I didn't want to wear my thongs outside in summer. And I remember running across the road on the bitumen to Anthony Sell's house, burnt my feet. I can't remember if mum let me do it or if I just disobeyed her, but you know what I mean? Sometimes kids don't think of the consequences and they hurt themselves. And as parents, we, we do protect kids, but sometimes you just got to let your kids do stuff. Hey, you've got to learn for themselves sometimes. And this is an example of that. So everyone, God listened to them and he gave them a king. He said, I'll give you a king, and everybody went back to their hometown. Now, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. We're going to find out who that first king is, but I'm going to tell you the first one was a shocker, exactly. Off the bat, off the bat, shocker. He was tall, handsome, fighty, very, very big. Probably would look like a front row forward. Everyone thought he'd be great. He was hopeless. So what I want to leave you with tonight is this. Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you enter the land the Lord God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the other nations, when you do that in your daily life, ask the question, why am I doing this? I am living my life that God has given me. I might not be entering the land of milk and honey like the people of Israel did when they entered the land, but you have a daily life that has been given to you by God. Please, brothers and sisters, continue to ask, why am I here? And why do I have what I have? And why do my problems exist? And where is God in the solution? Because if we live a thoughtful life and a prayerful life and we seek to try and ask those questions day by day, hopefully we won't be like the Israelites who said, let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us. Try not to want the things that everybody else has because there is only one person in the universe that can fulfil you and give you the life that you so yearn for and that is God himself. Jesus said, come to me all you who are heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Amen.